and welcome to this month's episode of the Distance Learning Roundtable on the Incandescent Radio Network and Incandescent TV. I'm Hope Katz-Gibbs, producer of the show where experts gather to discuss the future of online education. It's an honor to introduce you to the show's hosts, Pat Casella, the Executive Director of the U.S. Distance Learning Association, and Dean Hoke, Managing Partner of the international organization Edu Alliance. Today's topic is booking enrollment trends to grow in a challenging environment. We know you are gonna love this conversation. Our guest is Amrit Aluwalia. He is the editor in chief of The Evolution, an online newspaper focused on non-traditional higher education and the transforming post-secondary marketplace. Amrit will be an event speaker at the upcoming USDLA National Conference in Orlando. So check it out, July 17th to the 20th. We know you won't wanna miss it, usdla.org. All the details are there. So now I am going to throw it over to Pat to tell us more about Amrit. So Amrit was part of the team that conceived and launched Evolution. That's the online higher education paper back in January of 2012. It currently serves over 1,800 contributors and attracts approximately 65,000 monthly visitors. Uh, the site publishes articles and interviews by some of the industry's leading thinkers at every level from around the world. He earned his BA honors in political studies from Queens University and his MA in international politics from McMaster University. Some of his favorite things, he loves to cook and travel. I share those with the Amrit, absolutely. Uh, he and his wife live in London, Ontario. Uh, welcome Amrit, a pleasure to have you here. And um, hey, I'm going to kick it over to Dean for our first question. Well, very good. Emmer, pleasure to have you on the show. Very much appreciated. But I also appreciate the evolution. Been a subscriber for a little while, and I'm continuously fascinated in terms of the topics that you get into, the subject matter, and how you kind of come at a lot of things thematically. And one that really caught my attention has been the workforce readiness and employers expanding wow. its benefits, et cetera, in terms of furthering education. And we don't hear a great deal about that. At times, it kind of pops up within the media and some other places, but there hasn't been a lot said, I think, about that. Why do you think it's such an important topic? Why is it an important topic to your readers? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's, it's one of those things that can get really frustrating sometimes uh, with how disconnected the industry broadly can be from, from the necessity of workforce readiness, workforce alignment to the connectivity between programming and, and employment outcomes. The fact is students today are consumers. They think like consumers, they act like consumers, they're consumers in every other part of their life. And in higher education, we've been really slow to recognize that shift in, in their characteristics and their personality and in their tendencies and behaviors. These individuals prioritize labor market outcomes over almost everything else, uh, partially because of obviously how expensive a post-secondary program today can be, and partially because, frankly, we've spent decades teeing up workforce alignment as the core promise of what a post-secondary education can get you. Right now, internally, we talk a lot about good citizenry. We talk a lot about the importance uh, to society of having a, a, a well-educated uh, community and citizenship the importance of creating access to education at every turn. But when push comes to shove, we have a tendency to highlight the value of undergraduate education, especially as a pathway to a successful career. Unfortunately, we've done very, very little to actually translate that promise into action. We tend not to 
to highlight career pathways that that stem from particular programs. We tend not to certify uh, the development of different skills and competencies that are in demand in the labor market. Um, we tend not to uh, provide students with with strong career readiness opportunities. In fact, Strata did a survey. I want to say in 20, 2019 or 2020 in their series of public viewpoint surveys where they asked students if they were happy uh, or if they felt taking out a loan was worthwhile uh, and then split that data against schools uh, where students felt they had strong career services and schools where they felt they didn't have strong career services. For students that went to schools where they felt career services were strong, 72% of students were happy to have taken out loans. At schools where students felt the career services weren't strong, only 9% of students were happy to have gone into debt. Wow. And that is, if there could be a clearer indication of the priorities of the modern learner, I don't know what it would be. If we're thinking about, we're recognizing that students think and act like consumers, we're recognizing that in every facet of their lives, they behave like consumers, and we're not responding to their most central critical expectation of their post-secondary experience. So I, I think it's an important topic because they're, you know, our, the modern learner thinks it's an important topic, and that's an individual that votes with their feet. And are you getting good feedback? Are you getting a lot of comments in terms of the articles that you're writing? What are you hearing back a little bit? Yeah, now I will say we turned off commenting in 2013. So uh, our publication is um, has always been oriented towards opinion and innovation. And uh, in this industry, that can meet with some level of resistance that, frankly, we felt veered from being valuable to not constructive. Um, so in 2013, we turned off commenting. And uh, I will say the Chronicle and Inside Higher Edge followed us shortly thereafter. Uh, both Both publications turned off commenting. But, uh, you know, what, what I think we're finding is that we've seen our, our the traction on, on this content go up and up and up and up ever since we've launched. We see that in the, the reader metrics. We see that in uh, the, the reader tendencies. When we're providing insights that either provide instruction or perspective on how to orient the institution towards a labor outcomes focus, or when we publish articles that talk about the necessity of culture change in higher ed, those pieces tend to do very well. Very good. Pat? Thanks, Dean, and thanks, Sam. No, yeah, I, I love your comment that students are truly consumers these days. Yes. You know, it's great. They get excited. They want this uh, post-secondary degree. And then, well, you know, the reality is they are going to go have to go out into the workforce and, and be prepared and whatnot and take a job and pay those student loans off. So, um, you know, a lot of higher education institutions, they were profoundly affected by the pandemic at all levels, right? Yes. And even to this day, they're still adjusting, right? We've recovered quite a bit, but um, there's there's still lots of adjustments going on. What have you observed? And give your thoughts on what can these institutions do to help stabilize enrollment? The million dollar question, right? I mean, I definitely have some thoughts here. And I think, you know, anyone who's seen the enrollment trend data uh, published by National Student Clearinghouse can see the impact that the pandemic had on the public perception of the value of higher education. Um, you know, it's it's thrown into sharp relief. And I think what's what's really become clear is the importance of student centricity, however that's defined by any given institution, to operations and to success. Which I mean effectively what that means, and I realize student centricity is one of these terms that has become a buzzword. 
um, very disappointingly, but it's become a buzzword. And, and what I mean when I say student centricity is the constant pursuit of ensuring that every process, every service, every delivery within the institution is oriented towards the needs of the learner. So from that lens, I think you can look at most post-secondary institutions and say that not only is that not the case, but there really isn't a process in place to even start to pursue it. So an orientation towards student centricity, towards gearing the institution to actually serving and responding to the needs of the learners that are coming through the door, I'd say that's one very critical step that almost every post-secondary institution can take. And I'll also say student centricity to me feels like one of those things that's a constant pursuit, not necessarily something that's achievable, which is to say, I think there's the capacity to look at student centricity and say, can you accomplish it or can you not? And I don't think it's accomplishable. I think it's something you pursue. Secondly, I think it highlighted kind of the haves and the have-nots when it comes to high-quality distance and online programming. I think what the pandemic did was create a large, large gap between the institutions that are truly invested in and truly prioritized high-quality online learning experiences and schools that had really considered it an afterthought. Um, and that was seen in whether the institution implemented sort of emergency remote learning as its entire approach to teaching and, and learning over the course of the following year, or whether they could implement and leverage existing online best practices to create learning experiences that, while not perfect, still had elements of peer-to-peer -peer interaction and peer-to-faculty interaction that meet the threshold of a, of a solid educational experience. Finally, I think it really highlighted the value and the need for non-degree and alternative programming pathways. You know, I think uh, combined with the, the previous comments around the importance of, of labor market outcomes and employability, folks really started to recognize that they didn't necessarily need to do four to six to 10 years of, of education to get the skills and competencies necessary to get the job they wanted. What folks are increasingly looking for is a flexible learning environment that meets them where they are. And if that means, you know, someone's going to complete a degree over the course of 20 or 30 years, but will earn micro-credentials along the way that are going to certify them to continue to progress up a career ladder, that is a perfectly reasonable and acceptable and appropriate approach to pursuing a post-secondary education. By the same token, if you have a 17 or an 18-year-old that's looking for a life-affirming event that's going to help them progress into adulthood, help them teach them sort of independence and, and all those valuable things that come with a traditional liberal arts education, that should be accessible to people too. But what the last three or four years have done has highlighted that one model doesn't work for everyone. And in the non-traditional education space, I think we've all known this always, um, but we're really starting to see a broader recognition of that reality and a broader openness to experimenting with more flexible and more creative pathways to, to helping individuals accomplish their learning and goals uh, than, than we ever really have before. We really seem to be prioritizing it now, which is nice. Now, this is it's a great topic. You know, work, workforce co-op, is, as I would, you know, call it, right? To me, that's one of those elements that I think these universities really need to do a better job uh, with. You know, it doesn't mean you, know, you don't have to be traditional where you have to go to school for four years at a time and then get out and try to find a job. How about mixing in some real life work experience within those four years so that when you get out and you have a degree, you've got a little bit of experience on your resume. Oh, that's just, just my thoughts, right? Dean, I'm going to kick it over to you. Well, let's kind of continue this conversation based on COVID and when it just went nuts for everybody. And what comes to mind is that we've heard of a lot of examples of what went wrong. 
But I'm very curious from your perspective and your experience. Others took this on and were successful. They've, they've done new things. Can you give me some examples of schools that have done different things and been successful with it? Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I think there's there's a number of schools that have tried a number of different pathways to establish success through their own lens. And this is, it's really important to frame out, you know, when we talk about success, when we talk about the anecdotes and experiences of different learners and in different institutions, these aren't universal answers, right? These are experiences that made sense at a particular institution at a point in time that allowed them to be successful. But there's lessons there and there's consistent themes there that I think make sense across the board. So the first I'll talk about is is um, if you look at schools like uh, the Temple and the University of Minnesota, now these are institutions that had you know, sporadic institution-wide approaches to non-traditional and non-degree education that, you know, different faculties were all managing in isolation, generally off the side of someone's desk. And it created sort of an inconsistent experience for learners. It created an inconsistent understanding around the rigor of non-degree credentialing. Uh, Kennesaw State actually had a similar scenario. Um, And what they needed to do was figure out, like, how do we create an environment that allows for consistency in what we call a credential, even when it's not a degree? And so implementing what we've termed consolidated administration as their model has been an interesting pathway for those institutions to establish a more consistent and a more successful model to manage and support the, the, their non-degree or non-traditional program offerings. Um, because it created basically an environment where faculty could still focus on teaching and learning and development and delivery of programming. But the management of the business of non-traditional education, which is generally at minimum cost recovery, is being handled by experts who understand the management of complex programming. Um, and so, you know, we've seen at those institutions, uh, Temple saw a, th- a 30% revenue increase within a year of implementing that, that model. Uh, Minnesota was able to realize tens of thousands of dollars in savings from department to department to department just from being able to, you know, get rid of shadow systems and get rid of simplified processes and models. So, you know, I think at, at different institutions, the value is, is either in efficiency or in growth. But the point of the matter is, how do you create consistency across your non-degree education offerings that allow for people to do what they actually came to work to do in the first place? Because I guarantee you there's very few program managers who want to be doing general ledger accounting. Another model that we've seen work really well is leveraging the website as an enrollment driver. Um, you know, I think for a fair number of institutions, the website is kind of a catch-all for anyone's priorities at any point in time, depending on who happens to be loudest in the room. And as a result, you wind up with, and I will tell you, the average university website can be 70,000 to 80,000 individual pages, which is, for anyone who's worked on managing a website, insane. So what we've seen some institutions do is leverage personalized models that that create a more navigable website experience for website visitors, where you're able to personalize what's on the front page based on their browsing patterns, based on things that they've looked at in the past, based on whether they appear from out of state or from in state, so that you're simplifying their pathway to finding the right information at the right time for them. Ferris State University is one school that's done a great job on website personalization. They've seen a 2,800% increase on CTA uh, engagement. And it's just because they're giving people the information that they're looking for at a point in time. Uh, one final example is Ivy Tech, um, which is the, the system uh, of community colleges in Indiana. Now, Ivy Tech, 
fascinating. They're constantly, constantly at the leading edge of innovation when it comes to thinking about how to better serve learners. And, and their, their orientation, is, as all community colleges are, is toward creating pathways to success for underserved learners. And what they recognized is that, well, you know, maybe three, three semesters doesn't really make sense. Maybe that's not really the, the model that people are looking for. And, and so they shifted to, a, I believe, an eight-week semester model where they have five start dates throughout the year. Um, and they recognized that, well, summer melt is an issue when you only have three semesters. We now have just a melt issue. Because when you have five start dates through the year, your summer melt might be occurring in November. So what they started to look at was to say, well, it's not a question of summer melt, it's just a matter of increasing yield. And they're looking at how to leverage different kinds of messaging tools to A, create a registration uh, system where folks will register within 30, 30 days from the course start, because that's what they've, they've found is the sweet spot for someone to actually progress into the course itself. And then they leverage a mix of emails and texts to ensure that they're staying top of mind for those individuals. And those students are actually doing the things that they need to do to prepare themselves to enroll so that when that first day of classes comes along, they're still interested, they're still engaged, they're excited to get going, all their paperwork and prep stuff and orientation is done. And the common thread, now those are four, three to four, depending on how you want to count them. Those are three to four steamingly disconnected examples. But the connective tissue between all of them is an understanding of what the learners at that particular institution need. Great For institutions that have a not, have a, a, an orientation towards doing high-quality non-degree programming, how do you ensure that learners understand what that non-degree programming means, and how do you make it easy for them to find, enroll in, and, and attend the programs that are right for them at a point in time? For individuals that are, you know, from Ferris to State perspective, are just trying to get to the website to understand what's available to them. How do you make it easy for them to navigate a 70,000 page website? Implement mm -hmm. basic website personalization, which is common in other industries. For, for Ivy Tech, it's a question of how do we make our entire academic model fit the learners that are trying to come through the door? And then how do we build a communications platform on top of that to keep them engaged? All these things come back to that similar common thread, which is how do we design a strategy? And how do we design an experience that's actually tailored to the learners that are that we're serving? And that's 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 what student centricity means. When I talk about student centricity, that's what I'm talking about. Pat, yeah, thanks, Dean, and thanks, Samrit. Now, keeping on this topic here, and and we shifted a little bit towards student engagement, right? How do you keep the student engaged? Not just with you know making it yeah. easy for them to register and whatnot and get into a course, but you know, in both a physical classroom and a virtual classroom. How are you keeping these students engaged these times? Have you seen good examples of schools that have excelled in this area? Um, and, and let's also like to hear your thoughts. Is there an impact on the instructional designer for successful engagement? Let's chat about this. Absolutely. So I'm not going to call out a particular school here because I think it would be, you know, there are so many examples of this. But I think the starting point is that there's no such thing as a physical classroom and there's no such thing as a virtual classroom anymore. I think the learning environment in general is hybrid now. So if you're taking courses face-to-face, -face, there are online and virtual components of that learning experience that are essential to your success. And if you're taking courses virtually, there are face-to-face -face or physical engagement opportunities that you can have that are going to support your success, whether that's, you know, you're at a massive 
uh, globally serving institution and you have the opportunity to do a local meet and greet with other students from, from the region. So I think that we're, we're really shifting towards a very hybridized concept of what education and, and learning opportunities looks like. And that very much keeps on track with all of the things that we saw prior to the pandemic and how learners were trying to experience their learning. Right, which is that increasingly year over year, you saw an increasing number of students taking at least one uh, virtual class. And obviously 2020 has really spiked that data. But where we are today is students who live on campus still want to do at least one or two courses online because it just fits their schedule better. And I think what's really interesting is how we see the LMS being used even for in-person classes where, you know, it might be used for uh, to provide access to reading assignments or the curriculum. It might be used to provide access to additional resources. I think we're increasingly seeing flipped classroom models being implemented because they're very effective for learning. So what's great is that we're starting to see an intersection between what we saw as good online learning practice and just good learning practice. So when it comes down to, well, what's the role of the instructional designer in the modern post-secondary ecosystem, could there be a more important member of your team? No. You know, at the end of the day, the post-secondary product is a learning experience. The best learning experiences leverage digital learning opportunities and physical learning opportunities in a way that makes sense to the learner. The individual who pilots that is your instructional designer. So it's, it is kind of fascinating to think about where, where we are um, in context of, of building high-quality learning infrastructure, and it really starts with the instructional design team. I agree. I absolutely agree there. And they have their work cut out for them. And to, and to your point, it's true, really. These, these kids today, we talk about flexibility and the schools have to give them what they want. And uh, that is truly what they want. They want to learn where they want, when they want, how they want. Got to be flexible in there. And do you want to know what? I mean, it's a drawn out example, but we'll do it anyway. Anyone who does fantasy sports, and I, I hate the fact that I'm bringing them a, this up in a podcast. This is extremely embarrassing. That's good. But it's good. I, I, I have a group of friends. We do a fantasy football league in the, you know, and, and a fantasy hockey league. I haven't watched a game of hockey or football in the last three or five, eight, oh my God, 10 years. I haven't watched a, a game of hockey or football in the last 10 years without my cell phone. That's right. Because yeah. through that entire right. experience, I am keeping track of, of the players that are on my team and how they're doing. And that is a hybrid experience. Good point. Right? That is a foundationally hybrid experience. And I think that when you think about the way that 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 anyone, regardless of whether they're, again, like 17 years old, whether they're 14 years old, whether they're 40 years old, whoever the individual is, the way that we interact with our physical world is with virtual components. It's with bringing elements of, of hybridization to every single thing we do to ameliorate it. It's QR codes at the restaurant. It's, you know, it's it's having access to stats and, and data as you're watching a, a sports game. Like it's all these things that coalesce into uh, and a lived experience that brings the virtual world and the physical world together. And the faster we recognize this in the post-secondary space and don't see it as a threat, but actually celebrate that that's where we're at, the better. The problem is that we seem to see it as a threat to, to what we consider good teaching and learning to look like, which, you know, is nonsense. It's, it it's a nonsense syllogism. It doesn't make sense. It's, it's a really, it's, it's not a sensible way to see quality or to understand learning, learning impact. 
as as a binary between it's better face to face than it is online or it's better purely in one format than another it doesn't make sense agreed agreed dean keep the sports theme going well dean you didn't mention the the best sport and that's baseball of course but <laughs> anyhow but also kind of staying with your analogy um you know a lot of this started you know in, in the world of sabermetrics and things like that mm-hmm. And of course, one of my favorite movies is Moneyball. Okay, it talks about Oakland A's and talks about Billy Bean and the beginnings of the sabermetrics thing and Bill James' seminal work in that field. Now, why does this fit in education? Well, there actually is a bit of logic to it because in the movie, Bean basically says, adapt or die. And when he is fighting with his coaches and things, And frankly, I see that analogy at times within the field of higher education. It's one thing you've been talking about a lot of community colleges, a lot of state universities and groups that have considerable resources behind them. What I worry about are the smaller schools, the private schools, and they don't have the same level of access. What can they do? What can, can they take the approach of adapting or frankly dying? Yeah. You know, it's interesting you bring that up and, um, you know, just just yesterday, um, Cardinal Stritch University in, in Wisconsin just announced its closure on the back of about 10 years of, of pretty precipitous enrollment decline, uh, of an over-reliance on, on tuition and fees that, you know, when you have enrollment declines is not a solid, um, you know, it's not a business model that, that's going to be sustainable um, with, you know, consistently declining year-over-year graduation rates, year-over-year declining career placement rates. And look, it's it's a really upsetting situation when you think about what's happening to the fabric of higher education in the United States right now, because what makes higher education in the United States great is the diversity of, of opportunity, the diversity of choice that exists for learners. There are 4,600 accredited post-secondary institutions in the U.S. There is a, there is a perfect college or university for everyone. The problem is for about a hundred years, every single institution has tried to implement its own version of Harvard's model, which works really well for Harvard. Harvard is great at being Harvard. And there's a tier of institutions that are awesome at following that playbook for excellence. The problem is that middle tier of institutions become broadly undifferentiated because they don't have the resources. They don't have the the cachet or the brand awareness that Harvard does, but they're still trying to stand out on the things that makes Harvard, Harvard. And it doesn't make sense. And that's where the adaptability piece becomes really important. Who are the people in your community that need access to learning that don't have it? What are the employers who in your community are looking for when they're trying to figure out how do I build success for, for the demographic of learners that I want to be serving? And here's a stat. 39 million Americans have some access, have had some college experience without earning a credential. What are we doing to create pathways for them? What are we doing to create pathways for individuals who aren't necessarily interested in earning a degree, but enrolled at a boot camp because they promised a career outcome? What are we doing for local employers who are saying that their workforce doesn't have the skill set they need to be successful, but geez, I'd really rather just upskill them and train them than hire an entirely new staff or move or offshore. Right. These are the things that post-secondary institutions who are have an adaptability mindset can do without massive investment. It's just a question of priorities and shifting strategy. Right. Right. Shifting strategy and making investments are not synonymous. 
But the problem is that we've been very, very trained to think about a strategy shift and technology purchase as being the same thing. They're not. Now, I'd be lying if I said technology purchases don't support strategic shifts, right? But I think being able to shift a strategy and then find the right tools for your circumstance that are going to support that strategy shift is better than what I see a number of schools doing, which is effectively they get sold a tool, they implement the tool, and then they really hope that it's going to fix everything that's wrong with the business. And that's simply not how it works. So when we talk about adapt or die, I mean, I hate the language, but I have to agree with the sentiment, right? Which is that foundationally, Clayton Christensen predicted half of post-secondary institutions would either close or merge by 2037, I think. Um, we're well on our way there, and the data is proving out that that's more or less what's happening. So the question yeah. becomes, how do we get away from the status quo and start figuring out what do our communities need? Um, and I think the faster institutions start making that adjustment and then start looking at, okay, in that context, then what's student centricity, right? The faster yeah. we're going to create an environment that's actually going to adapt to where we're at. And, and I think, you know, an unfortunate circumstance of possibly our shared ego as an industry is that I think it's very difficult for some folks to make that strategy shift a reality. I, I think one of the things that comes up, and I'm just more of a comment about it, the small colleges and the struggles they have in the adapting. But one thing they forget, I think, in a lot of cases, the majority of their students come from within 50 miles. Yep. And that is true of traditionals, but also non-traditional students. And there's ways that they should be adapting to that situation as opposed to that technology lets me get a student in Bangladesh. The question is, is can it help them in terms of new technologies and new things? And what does it do for your local community? And how does that serve you best? Because that's your bread and butter, I think. So well, anyhow, that's my political statement of the day. But Pat, I'm going to let you finish up. It's all good. No, it's all wrapping and tying in uh, really well here. Uh, Amron, I know you've had your finger on the pulse of education with the magazine for, for a long time. In your you know, thoughts, where are we headed? You know, what surprised you, first, first of all, about the evolution that we have seen? And what do you think? And I know we just started talking about universities merging and by 2037 and more than. Yeah, and I, I see it happening. Um, what's going to be the next big thing that we're talking about? Yeah, you know, I think this is a cop-out answer, so forgive me. I think the <laughs> thing that surprised me the most is that we're still moving as slowly as we are. Oh, God, yeah. It's, you know, and this is from a position of great privilege. So let me, you know, take that moment to acknowledge that that's true. I have the, the massive privilege of working exclusively with leaders in the post-secondary space that are passionate about creating change. So since we launched, all I've ever done is talk to folks that are as frustrated as I am that the post-secondary space is moving slowly. We were publishing about micro-credentialing in 2012. We were publishing about competency-based learning in 2013. We were publishing about you know all these things that are suddenly become the value of instructional design, I think, was a 2012 article. You know, it's, it's, we've been talking about these things for well over a decade. That's right. And I would say the thing that frustrates me most is that to some extent, we still need to have the same arguments, those same conversations. Now, in terms of where we're going, again, for folks in this space, there's not going to be anything new or exciting or transformational about it. 
Um, I think it's really a, a matter of figuring out what, again, what does our community need and how can we, the institution, adapt to deliver it? I think for the most part, that's going to look like competency-based micro-credentials. I think we're going to see a significant increase in the number of competency-based micro-credentials on offer. Um, I think we're going to see a tight alignment between those micro-credentials and either existing or in-development degree programs so that individuals can have lifelong learning pathways that lead them to two degrees over time in a way that's flexible. That's, that's what I think the future looks like for us, but the road there is not smooth. Because at, at its core, it's challenging the financial model of the post-secondary institution. And to a certain extent, it's also challenging the value proposition of the average post-secondary institution, which is built more around seat time than it is learning. So the, there are some hurdles in the way, but that's that's kind of the direction I think we're going. Another thing that we're all talking about right now and that I think is maybe not as big a deal as people are making it out to be is, is sort of generative AI and chat GPT. Um, because at the end of the day, the way I'm kind of looking at it is just a much, much better search engine. Um, you know, it's a it's another mechanism that humans have developed to make it easier to navigate the reams of information available to them online and to make it make sense. Now, from our perspective as, as education institutions and as educators, the question isn't, are we threatened by the existence of ChatGPT? The question is, how do we teach humans to make the most of it? Because if we're miseducated about what it is, and if we're miseducating people about what it is, and if we're more focused on policing it than we are understanding it, which is increasingly the direction I see us going, talking more about plagiarism than the value proposition, that's, that is the kind of backwards thinking that put us in this situation in the first place, where people are pointing out the disconnect between where we are as an industry and what our promise is to individuals. So it's just another example of... of you know, even the most innovative thinkers in our space are still very threatened by things that should be more of an opportunity. And that's, I guess, if I think about the cultural shift that I'd like to see in our industry, it's more of an openness to to being adaptable to things that could be interesting, rather than being threatened by things that we don't quite understand. You know, you said a, a couple of things there that I was taking some notes. And um, one, of the, one of them was good. I love the analogies. You know, the road is not smooth. And that's what you said. And when the road's not smooth, we all know you can't drive fast. And there could be the problem, you know, we want to see change, been talking about things for a decade. Well, when the road's not smooth, you you don't you you can't go fast. What can you do? And and how do you handle the duration? You gotta be able to adapt. As Dean was just saying, right? Adapt or die. So, you know, you have to be around for the long haul. You can't go as fast as you really want because the road isn't smooth. You can either get a smoother road. That could be something we talk about, or you you have to be built for duration, mm-hmm. and uh, that could lead us to who's going to survive over the next five years. This is ec- excellent, excellent. Hope I'm going to turn it over to you for closing uh, closing notes. Another fascinating conversation. I love it, Amrit. You are just a wealth of knowledge. Gosh, fascinating. The evolution is indeed a wonderful publication. I have been following you as well, and. We're just thrilled to have you here. We're thrilled to have you at the U.S. Distance Learning Association as one of our keynote speakers. So July 17th to the 20th, everybody, usdla.org. Get your tickets now. It's going to be fascinating and wonderful. So thank you all. Thank you, Pat. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Amrit, for another wonderful episode. This is our May episode, May 2023. Check us out, www 
distancelearningroundtable.com and you can watch our videos on distancelearningroundtable.tv. So thank you. I'm Hope Katz Gibbs. So thrilled to be producing this show. We will see you all next month. Bye.